Open your Bibles to Joshua 22. Joshua 22, I will read verse 10, and then uh, moving down to verse 15 to 29. Joshua 22, verse 10. And as we read here, I'd like for us to uh, think about actions and principles that have to do with conflict raising and or conflict resolution. Proverbs 22, verse 10. And when they came unto the borders of Jordan, that are in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, built there an altar by Jordan, the great altar, a great altar to see to. Verse 15. And they came unto the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and to the half-tribe of Manasseh unto the land of Gilead. And they spake with them, saying, Thus saith the whole congregation of the Lord, What trespass is this that ye have committed against the God of Israel, to turn away this day from following the Lord, and that ye have builded you an altar, that ye might rebel this day against the Lord? Is the iniquity of Peor too little for us, from which we are not cleansed unto this day, although there were a plague in the congregation of the Lord? But that ye may turn away this day from following the Lord, and it will be, seeing ye rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be wroth with the whole congregation of Israel. Notwithstanding, if the land of your possession be unclean, then pass ye over unto the land of the possession of the Lord, wherein the Lord's tabernacle dwelleth, and take possession among us. But rebel not against the Lord, nor rebel against us, in building you an altar beside the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass and the accursed thing, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel, and that man perished not alone in his iniquity. Then the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said unto the heads of the thousands of Israel, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knoweth, and Israel he shall know, if it be in rebellion or if it be in transgression of the Lord. Save us not this day, that we have built us an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if we have offered, if, or if to offer thereon burnt offering or meat offering, or if to offer peace offerings thereon, let the Lord himself require it. And if we have not done it for fear of this thing, saying, in time to come your children might speak unto our children, saying, what have ye to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord hath made Jordan a border between us and you. Ye children of Reuben and the children of Gad, ye have no part in the Lord, so shall your children make our children cease from fearing the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now prepare to build us an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but that it may be a witness between us and you, and our generations after us, that ye might do the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings, and of the Lord before him, and with your children, let me back up there but that it may be a witness between us and you and our generations after us that we might do the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings that your children may not say to our children in time to come, ye have no part in the Lord. Therefore said we that it shall not be when they should so say to us and to our generation in time to come that we may say again, behold the pattern of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made nor for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifices, but it is a witness between us and you. God forbid that we should rebel against the Lord and turn this day from following the Lord to build an altar for burnt offerings, for meat offerings, 
or for sacrifices beside the altar of the Lord our God that is before his tabernacle. You may be seated. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Galatians five, fifteen and 16. You might remember that I said three weeks ago when I last preached here that this would be that this sermon today would be another in a series on the man Joshua and the book of Joshua. Um, you might remember that, we, that this is the seventh in the series, and we have looked at various parts of the book of Joshua in order, and principles from the life of Joshua the leader. Unlike what I said then, three weeks ago, The title today is not Joshua and his benediction, neither is this the, we don't think this is the last of the series of Joshua. Of Joshua 22, I only really noticed, really noticed Joshua 22 this week, and as the week progressed, it just seemed like I should include Joshua 22 in the sermon today. And a little later in the week, it just seemed as if Joshua 22 should be the sermon. And then as I studied some more and prepared, it seemed like I came up with more notes than usual. Maybe even many more notes than usual. So you might want to just buckle your seatbelts and get ready for a nice long ride. Joshua 22. And the title that I've chosen is Joshua and the Brawl, which doesn't seem like a very holy title to have on a Sunday morning. But then again, that word means a noisy quarrel, squabble, or fight. And that's just what we see here in Joshua 22. So much so, it was such a brawl that they were willing to engage in civil war and came within a whisker of doing that back in that day. The quarrel they had, the squabble, the conflict. Jim Irwin says, and I quote from him, that he suggests that there are four primary causes of conflict in our families, in our churches, in our schools, businesses, and so on, in our communities. And he points to the first one as saying that conflict is often caused or aggravated by sinful attitudes and habits that lead to sinful words and actions. James 4, 1 to 2. Remember that verse begins... From whence come wars and fightings among you? And I kind of think if the Lord tarries and we live much longer, that we will hear more about that um, in Dave's sermon on the book of James, Dave's series on the book of James. A second reason for conflict often is uh, competition over limited resources, uh, like time and money. 
It, that's a frequent source of disputes. Genesis 13, 1 to 12, remember uh, Abraham and Lot. Number three, there's differences in values and goals and gifts and callings and priorities and expectations and interests and opinions. And this can lead to conflict. Witness Paul and Barnabas' conflict in Acts 15.39. And the fourth one is that some disputes arise because of misunderstandings resulting from poor communication. And that is showed very well, too well, in Joshua 22. There was misunderstanding. A lot of that misunderstanding was because of poor communications. Now, this generation of Israelites that are in view in the book of Joshua and Joshua 22 specifically was a very spiritual generation. Remember their parents, the generation just before them, didn't believe God and their carcasses, like the Bible says, fell in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. But this generation had experienced wonderful blessings of the Lord. Um, they had experienced as they obeyed the Lord, nothing but victory after victory after victory, fighting from victory ground. This is a, a spiritual generation of Israelites, but even in that, there was cause for conflict. Joshua 22. I think that this chapter could be referred to as the Galatians 5, 16 and 17 of the Old Testament. Remember those verses I read, Galatians 5, 16 and 17, that talks about how that the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And notice that lusteth, E-T-H, which indicates a present continuous action. So we are able in the brawl of Joshua 22 to see both flesh reaction and spirit response to conflict. And maybe as Dave was reading here, you were noticing both kinds, flesh reaction and spirit response to conflict. And this chapter provides a good commentary, I'm convinced, and it should provide learning for us as God's people, even though we're living 3,400 years about after the events of this chapter took place. We'd like to look at four points especially here, and each of these four points, uh, I'd like to highlight four sub-points Four points, and each of the four points have four subpoints. It looks like today is the number for four. You might remember that Nate Bang in the devotional uh, talked about four figures of speech there in Zachariah's um, sermon or song. And he also talked, he mentioned the number four. And four seems to be primary today. Let's think, number one, the first point is a, that of conflict, conflict. In verses 11 through 20, it's that of conflict. It's easy for you to see, it's easy for me to see, isn't it? And there's four manifestations of 
misunderstandings here because of poor or inadequate communication. And we'd just like to look at these four. The first one I especially notice in verses 11 and 12 has to do with assumptions. Do you see assumptions? There is those two phrases, one in verse 11, heard say. Do you see it there? Verse 11. Verse 12, heard of it. Heard say and heard of it. Nobody in the nine and a half tribes that were living on the west side of Jordan had been there when the two and a half tribes had built that altar, had erected that altar close to the Jordan River. None of them had been there. And very few, if any of them, of the nine and a half tribes had seen this altar yet. But everybody had heard of it. Hearsay. Assumptions. In this case, and perhaps every case where there is hearsay, the hearsay was, is both correct and incorrect. And I think that you can pick out some points of the hearsay that was correct, but also some that was very wrong. Um, what do you think? Would you say that Christians today often become offended by what they hear because we assume the worst? Yeah, I think so too. Proverbs 18.13 He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. James 1, 19 and 20, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Assumptions. These people picked up on that assumption, and maybe we think almost for good reason, they picked up on assumptions and ran with it. And not everything... Not, maybe you're thinking about situations in your life, in your experience, something that you've heard, where assumptions also bring people to grief because I think not many things, not everything has changed in the last 3,400 years. Assumptions are a still part of misunderstanding and poor communication. Assumptions. In verse 12 now, the second Subpoint, verse 11 and 12, assumptions. Verse 12, assembly. Do you see that they assembled their army because of the assumption? An assumption was made, whether correct or incorrect, whether right or not, an assumption was made, and it led to the assembling of the army. Assembly. Assumptions, assembly. Verse 12, these troops had just laid down their arms that they had used to eradicate the enemies of God in the promised land. They had just laid down their arms against their enemies, their ungodly enemies, and now, so quickly, they're picking them up again to use them against their own brothers. What do you think? Would you say that Christians today sometimes are uh, more 
quickly ready to assemble against their brothers than the legit enemies that are ours. And we especially have three enemies biblically, the world, the flesh, and the devil. I think, too, that too often we as Christians are more ready to pick up arms against our brothers than against our real enemies. What do you think of this song? It's time we the people stand up for what is right. It's time we squared our shoulders back and raised our swords to fight. For the Bible is our weapon and the spirit is our shield. The church needs more of its members to be workers in the field. And yes, that's right. That modern song, gospel song, is correct in a lot of ways. If indeed we do it against the right set of enemies. It's not for our brothers, but for the enemies of God and our enemies. So in this assembly, when they mobilized to fight against their brothers, against themselves, there's five words in verses 11 and 12 that were almost deadly then and sadly are sometimes almost as dangerous today, and I just lead you back to those five words, heard say and heard of it. Deadly words. Well, so we see that this conflict that was here was because of assumptions and which led to assembly of the army to fight, and then thirdly, to appeal. One of the things that these nine and a half tribes did to, to lead to conflict and more conflict was to appeal. And what I mean by that is to appeal to God's name and God's word too loosely. Look in verses 16 through 19, and this is what the nine and a half tribes led by Phinehas say to the two and a half tribes when they meet. And I notice, if I counted correctly, that in verses 16, 17, 18, 19, in those four verses, that the nine and a half tribes refer to God by the word Lord or God 12 times. They're, they're appealing to God's name and God's word too loosely. And in so doing, I think you, we understand, don't we, that they wanted the rebellious two and a half tribes to know how super spiritual they were. So they used the name of God and the Lord quite a lot. They appealed to God's name and God's word too loosely. First it was assumptions, which led to assembly, and now they're appealing to their super spiritual condition. I think we understand. Turns out that these super spiritual nine and a half tribes actually only had their own perspective and their own incorrect opinion to go on. What do you think? 
Do you think that we should be careful about judging others by saying, God told me to tell you, or the Lord showed me, or the Lord wants you to know? Do you think that we should be careful about that? Especially when it's against God's word? Yes, I do too. I remember how that uh, a lady told my wife Wanda once that the Lord showed her what she is to do or not to do, and, it, and what the Lord showed her was exactly opposite of what the Bible says on that issue. Now, how can that be? Let's not appeal to God's name and God's word too loosely like these people did in this day and to highlight or show off our super spirituality and how that we are above everyone else in our understanding? Certainly not. Especially if it's just our own perspective and our own opinion because, you know, it's just possible that when I have my own opinion and my own perspective that I could possibly be wrong. Like these nine and a half tribes were here in Joshua 22. I think the overriding lesson for me here in their appeal to God's name and God's word in their effort to show how spiritual they were, I think the overriding lesson for me here is that for me to be aware of spiritual pride. Spiritual pride. Well, there is nothing like spiritual pride, but it it's fleshly pride. Beware of pride. Okay, so we've seen the assumptions. We've noticed how they assembled their army in response to the wrong assumptions. We've seen how they appealed to God's name and God's word in their effort to show how spiritual and good and right they are. That brings us to verses 17 through 20. And notice the accusations that they level against the two and a half tribes. Assumptions, assembly, appeal. It ends up with accusations. Earlier in their own camp, back in the assumptions stage, they had assumed, they had made assumptions. Now they're facing their brothers and they make accusations. Assumptions typically lead to accusations. It wasn't only in Joshua 22, but I think that's kind of a principle yet today. Wrong assumptions typically lead to wrong accusations. My brethren, that should not once be named among us. They make some terrible accusations here. In verse 17, the nine and a half, the spiritual ones, you know, the in quotes, spiritual ones, level the accusation of lust. Peor. You can easily go back and read about that. In verse 18, they say, you are guilty of idolatry. In verse 19, they say, you are a rebellious people. And in verse 20, they say, you are like Achan. And Achan was one, see, what about Achan? Well, he was covetous and he was deceitful. Terrible accusations. And this is, if I can use the term, this is Christian brothers accusing other Christian brothers. They had shared multiple mighty victories with these. And they had seen God's great goodness in the last seven years. 
and the 40 years before that, for that matter. And now they are accusing their own brothers of some awful things. Turns out that it wasn't true, wasn't right, wasn't, certainly wasn't complete. And if I, in response to all of this, of this point number one, conflict, if I don't care enough about the truth to seek it out, then it would be right to say, wouldn't it, if I don't care enough to seek out the truth, then I should, by the Spirit of God living within me, just keep quiet, shouldn't I? If you don't care enough about the truth to really seek it out, then you ought, by the Spirit of God living within you, to just be quiet, shouldn't you? That's the conflict. Assumptions. Leads to assembly of the army. Leads to an appeal to their great spirituality. And it leads to accusations. Let's think now, second point. We've noticed the one point with the four subpoints. Let's go now to verses 21 and 29 to notice how that the two and a half tribes show their carnality in four different ways. We've seen how that the nine and a half tribes caused conflict by four different ways. And we now can see, I think, how that the two and a half tribes show their own set of weaknesses, their own carnality, in, let's say, four different ways. Notice in verses 23, 22 through 25, how that they are a boasting kind of people. Now, it doesn't say that exactly there, but am I, I might not be too wrong to pick up in what they say that they're kind of a boasting um, and maybe you sense that too, that their confidence in themselves by what they say and how they say it. For one thing, they fling God, the word God, and the words Lord back at the nine and a half tribes, back to their accusers pretty often there in those, three, in those four verses. In fact, it's 12 times. Isn't that something? The accusers had in four verses time appealed to God too, and his name too loosely, and now the accused fling that, those terms back at them, back at their accusers, and I think I notice both of them are four verses, 12 times. You would think, wouldn't you, that with all this spiritually, by invoking God's name, all this great spirituality that the accusers and the accused uh, throw back and forth to each other, you'd think there'd just be so much spirituality around that they were there that there could be no conflict ever. But that certainly is not the case here, and maybe that's not always the case in our day. Uh, so I sense their confidence in themselves by how they use the name of God and Lord and how they fling that back to the accusers. I also sense their confident and boasting spirit, how they're confident in themselves and boasting of themselves by how that they indicate or imply, and again, it's not exactly said that, but I think I can pick up the implication that they would never, never, never do what that they had just been accused of. Look at verse six, um, verse 22. The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knoweth, and Israel he shall know, and so on. 
they, would, they could never, never do what they were accused of. It seems like they think that they know their heart and know that they would never stoop to that. And in that way, they are boasting of their own spirituality, kind of in reaction to the nine and a half tribes' own thought of their great spirituality. Jeremiah 17, 9. Do you know what it says? It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? They would never, never do the, that, this kind of thing of apostatize before the Lord. Yet, First Chronicles 5, two verses there in First Chronicles 5, 25 and 26, apparently, seemingly, these tribes were the very first to apostatize and to be taken into captivity. If not the first, certainly they were included there. So their boast is just a little bit empty as we see the future history of these two and a half tribes. Not only do they boast, not only do they show their carnality by boasting, but in verse 25, they do a good job of blaming. Number two, blame. For the, they say, for the Lord hath made Jordan a border between us. The Lord hath made jo Jordan the border between us. Truth be told, it wasn't the Lord who had made that border. Who was it that had made that border? They themselves had done that. Uh, you could look back in Numbers 32 where these two and a half tribes approached Moses and said, you know, this isn't really the land of Israel yet. We're, we're east of the Jordan River and we haven't gotten into Canaan where our inheritance lies. Using my own words here, of course. But we like it here. This is a, we see how it's a very good pasture land. It's great for cattle. We, we think we'd just like to settle down here. Can you bless us, Moses, for taking our allotment of land here? Well, Moses initially didn't like the idea at all. You can look at Notice it in Numbers 32, but he eventually conceded. It's pretty plain to me, it's pretty plain to me that God allowed them to follow their own heart's desire and live outside Canaan. It wasn't his best, it wasn't his ideal, it wasn't what he had in mind, but he allowed them since that was what they wanted. Psalm 106.15, and he gave them their request, but sent leanness unto their soul, and I think that well, that principle lives on yet today, and I think we see that somewhat here in Joshua 22. They had wanted what they had wanted, and they were able to get what they had wanted. But now they have the audacity to pin the blame on God when they say, For the Lord hath made Jordan a border between us. Blame. Back in Numbers 32, when they had stated their wants and desires, it was because of their concern about cattle. And, but do you see what their concern is now here today? Verse 24, verse 25, verse 27. It's the children, not the cattle, but the children. And they're saying, we're so concerned about our children 
I wonder if it was that as much as some other things. But at least, um, yes, the blame. The land there east of the Jordan, in the land of Gilead, it didn't have good defensible borders. So it's easy to see uh, why this area was overrun more quickly by invaders. And first, when, inv uh, when invading armies headed for the Promised Land, it was easy to get the land of Gilead first. This blaming business, blaming God, this blaming business is as old as, as what? As Adam, isn't it? Remember what he said? This, the woman that you gave me, she gave to me so I did eat. He had the nerve to blame God. Moses, Moses of all people did the same. That day when God approached him at the burning bush and said, I want you to go to Egypt and deliver my people, one of the things that Moses said there was that, well, I can't talk. I never could talk and I don't notice my words. I never could talk and I don't notice that since you're appearing to me here that I can talk any better. It's your fault, Lord, that I'm not willing. This blaming business, as old as Adam, as old as Moses, it's as old as Naomi. Remember in, in Ruth, the book of Ruth, chapter 1, she says, um, God is against me. She blames God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if here in the 21st century, if it would only be unbelievers that blame God? Now, I know that we wouldn't do like Adam Moses and Naomi, would we? We would do it in a more subtle way not, and not quite as outright. But how wonderful it would be if in the 21st century in our day there would be no blaming God here in our assembly, no one that blames God at all. So we've noticed their carnality in boasting and in Blame shifting in verse 25. Now the third one here is also in verse 25, and that's also blame. So we have blame, and then we have blame. First they blame God in the beginning of verse 25, and then by the end of verse 25, they're back to blaming again. And here it's not blaming God, but they're blaming their brothers. They're blaming the nine and a half tribes. Here's a quote from Jim Irwin. I changed just a couple words here. Carnal people blame their family problems on churches or other believers. Blaming the church is always an indication of carnality. Blaming the church is always an indication of carnality. If your kids were better behaved, our kids wouldn't be rebellious, says the carnal parents. It is the mature believer who understands that it's not up to the church, Boy Scouts, or the school system to raise his children. It's up to him. When his children struggle, it's the believer who says, Lord, I have dropped the ball. Show me what to do. Blame. Blame often leads to bitterness. Look that up in Ruth 1, verses 20 and 21, and, and notice how blame and bitterness run on parallel tracks. I remember a long time ago, down in the basement here at church, along the south wall, 
in a Sunday school class when I was, oh, about the age of you boys here in the front, I'm guessing, that our Sunday school teacher one day, Floyd Stolzfus of Pequay, he was talking about on this subject, and he said, he said, he said, if I can get it together just now, he said it so emphatically that I thought I still remember it. We are all personally responsible before God, he told us boys that day. We are all, everyone is personally responsible before God. He said that so often, I guess, and so emphatically, and so sincerely that somehow I remember that even yet. We are all personally responsible before God. Blame shifting, whether it's blaming God, blame shifting, whether it's blaming other people, it's not going to stand any test. It didn't back then, and it's not going to today. Well, we're talking about boasting, blaming, and blaming. Let's look now at the blindness that that brings in verses 26 through 29, where they say, It seems here in these verses, again, I'm just kind of picking that up between the lines. It seems like they're so blinded by their boasting and by their blaming that they forget, they forgot that this great altar to see by wasn't God's plan at all. It wasn't God's idea or the best or God's idea. It was their own idea. And this they could hardly see, they were kind of blinded and could hardly see that this, them building this altar, which God didn't command them to do at all, was creating unnecessary confusion and conflict. They, they were just blinded to that. Doing God's commands in my way today now, for me, when I do God's commands my way, for my reasons, in my timing, um, as much as I want to, it's going to bring blindness every time. And it'll be the same for you. When you do God's commands your way, for your reasons, in your timing, it's going to bring blindness. And that's a concept that I see shining through here. Especially so when it's coupled, blindness is going to come from boasting and blame shifting and bitterness. Happened back then. I think it'll happen to us today. The third point now, we've gone through the first two points of conflict, four ways that we notice conflict. Carnality, four ways that that showed up. And again, that's boasting, blame shifting, blame shifting, and blindness. Let's think now, look now, and I'm really glad to turn after noticing these flesh reactions, I'm really glad now to turn to Evidences of spirit response, of the Holy Spirit, yeah, spirit response. For the nine and a half tribes, there was steadfastness on their part. We noticed some of their weaknesses that brought on conflict, but let's look now at some four things that they did right. Back in that day, the spirit was lusting against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit, a little bit like 
the Christian life even yet today. In verses 11 and 12, backing up to 11 and 12, we notice their steadfastness. They were serious about and concerned and steadfast in their stand against sin. They, and I appreciate that, that they were so serious about this. They took God's position of opposing and not tolerating sin in their midst at all. It turned out that they really hadn't sinned. Not really. Although, well, yeah. Anyway, they were serious about sin. They took God's position here. God hates sin. God grieves over sin. It's, it's a stench in his nostrils. God hates sin. And we do well. We need to, like these nine and a half tribes, hate sin also. Psalm 5, verses 4 and 6. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. God hates sin. And I love to see how that these people here, the nine and a half tribes, were steadfast in their position against sin. They didn't overlook it. They didn't try to ignore it. But they were steadfastly concerned about it. The se a second wonderful thing that I see about the nine and a half tribes here is that they sought, they were seeking, not only were they steadfast, but they also were seeking the truth by proper investigation. You had noticed that before, perhaps, and were hoping that I would bring it up. I hope maybe you, I hope that you were hoping that. They sought the truth by proper investigation, although they had assembled their army and were ready to go to fight against these apostates, so they thought. It's such a blessing that they appraised before they attacked. They appraised the situation. They sent a delegation. They did some proper investigation. I'm so grateful for that. Not, they didn't check with their neighbors, their friends, the inhabitants of the land, but they went directly to what they thought was the guilty party. This is Old Testament, friends. It's, I like to think of verses 13 to 15 and, and that delegation that went as a, the Matthew 18 of the Old Testament. They went right to who they thought the apparently guilty party. They didn't go anywhere else and spread any accusations or rumors. They went to directly and made a proper investigation of the right people. That is such a simple concept under God, but it's so, so profound. May he help me, may he help us, may he help all of us to do the same. May he help you and I to always do that. To seek proper investigation before we assume and before we make all kinds of accusations. Not only that, not only were they steadfast and seeking the truth by proper investigation, but thirdly, they were a sacrificing people. Do you notice that in verse 19? Just one little phrase that in verse 19 that speaks volumes about their concern here. Verse 19 and take possession among us. 
Pass ye over into the land of the possession of the Lord, wherein the Lord's tabernacle dwelleth, and take possession among us. What does that mean? It, these people, the nine and a half tribes, are saying, come on over and just live with us. In the midst of their assumptions and accusations, they were solution-oriented, and they said, come on over and live with us. That would take care of all the issue, would take care of the problem, would take care of the conflict. We're concerned about you. Just come on over into the promised land, the real promised land, and live among us, sacrificing at their own expense. Because you know what would happen if those two and a half tribes would move over there west of the Jordan. Everybody would be a little bit more crowded and nobody would have quite as much land. It would have been a sacrifice But in their concern, they were willing to sacrifice. They weren't the kind of people that were going to have petty, were going to have border disputes or uh, petty annoyances of any kind. You know, that rings so clear to me today. Showcasing sin or that idea of just getting all aggravated about petty uh, personal aggravations and telling your friend uh, telling people that isn't awfully helpful unless I'm also willing to offer a possible solution even to the point of sacrificing. I am so blessed that Israel was able and willing to sacrifice for the good of the group. Not only that, but they sanctioned steadfastness, seeking the truth, sacrificing. They also sanctioned the statement of defense that the two and a half tribes made. Isn't that neat? They sanctioned that. They accepted that. And they approved of the rebuttal, the defense. Their assumptions, uh, and by their accepting that, by their sanctioning the statement that was made, the defense that was made, they were saying that our assumptions and our accusations are over. We're done. We believe you. Which brings me to the question, how's my concern? How's my acceptance? How's my sanctioning of loved ones at home and at church and at work and at school and in our community? When they give a statement, am I willing just to accept it, to sanction that, and give them the benefit of a doubt, like these people did here in Joshua 22? We only have one more point to make, four sub-points after that, under that. I'm kind of thinking that maybe I'll just let that until another time. Maybe I'll have a devotional in a few weeks or something such. So we've talked about the conflict and the carnality and the concern that was shown. Maybe some other time I'll talk about the conciliation so in trying to sum this all up and come to an ending, isn't it amazing that this forgotten corner of the Old Testament or almost forgotten corner of the Old Testament, or at least that is to me, what all can be drawn there in that of conflict resolution or conflict raising? Let's be the kind of people that resolve conflict as we in our, 
are steadfast and really seek the truth by proper investigation and are willing to sacrifice for the good of the group and are willing to sanction what the accused party says and believe, give them the benefit of a doubt. I was unsure of some of the outline today, but I am not unsure, but very sure of the concepts and the truth that are given here in this small corner of the Old Testament that, where we don't look or read very often. These concepts, this truth, it's for you. It's for me today. Thank God. Would you kneel with me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for what your word is and what your word contains. And we thank you for this little corner of the Old Testament here in Joshua 22 and all that it has to teach us and all that it has to remind us about conflict and resolving conflict in godly and right ways rather than reacting to conflict in wrong and negative and carnal ways. Thank you for the good things that both the nine and a half tribes and the two and a half tribes teach us and yet today in our lives here in the 21st century. Thank you for your presence and blessing with us here today. Thank you for the privilege of serving you in our present time and place and I pray that we could do that holy and faithfully, Heavenly Father, until you come. In Jesus' name, amen.